Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My name is John Schuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find information about my congregation at the website www.fpcelizabethton.org. That's fpcelizabethton.org. Also, check out my new website that connects this radio program with my own reflections about religion at religionforlife.com. Religion, F-O-R-L-I-F-E, dot com. Bookmark it. Favorite it. Market with a B. Uh, you'll find information about uh, upcoming programs, links to podcasts, sermons, and articles about religion in America, religionforlife.com. I've put together a series of shows under the heading The Future of Faith. And coming up in future programs, I will be speaking with authors who have something to say about the changes that are taking place in religion and what these changes mean. Uh, some of these folks are, are from a variety of places on the spectrum. Some of them really are into church, and some of them are, are not. Some are evangelical, others progressive, but all are critical thinkers, and uh, we will learn from all of them. They include Diana Butler-Bass, author of Christianity After Religion, Brian McLaren, who wrote Why Did Jesus, Moses, and the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road, Carol Howard Merritt, Reframing Hope, Robin Myers, author of The Underground Church, and Marcus Borg, Speaking Christian. Uh, this is the second show today of my fascinating conversation with someone who really has the big picture of the whole thing, Phyllis Tickle. She's the author of two important books, The Great Emergence and Emergence Christianity. Spoke with her last week, and this is continuing uh, my conversation with Phyllis Tickle. She is the founding editor of the Religion Department of Publishers Weekly, the International Journal of the Book Industry. She is frequently quoted in print sources like USA Today, Christian Science Monitor, The New York Times, as well as in electronic media like PBS, NPR, The Hallmark Channel, and, of course, Religion for Life. Uh, Phyllis Tickle is an authority on religion in America and a much-sought-after lecturer on the subject, and that's why we're so happy to have her here. In addition to her lectures and numerous essays, articles, and interviews, Phyllis Tickle is the author of over two dozen books in religion and spirituality. I mentioned her big book, The Great Emergence, and the one in which we are talking this week, Emergence Christianity. Professor Tickle began her career as a college teacher and for almost 10 years served as academic dean to the Memphis College of Art before entering full-time into writing and publishing. She is a lay Eucharistic minister and lector in the Episcopal Church. She's the mother of seven children, and with her physician, husband makes her home on a small farm in Lucy, Tennessee. And we are continuing our fascinating conversation about emergence Christianity. Well, my, my guest, uh, Phyllis Tickle, author of Emergence Christianity, what it is, where it's going, and why it matters. Uh, one of the things that I, th that I find uh, locally is that people find themselves, many people, uh, disgusted with Christianity. Uh, they find it to be anti-gay, anti-science. It's married the political right wing. It's uh, become the, the voice, uh, the spiritual sanction of empire building. And I have people tell me they're no longer Christian, but they still like Jesus. Uh, they're spiritual, oh, yeah. but not religious. <laughs> is this all part of emergence? Yeah, yes, it is. And uh, the, the 28th of, of 
October. We're speaking in October, the 28th of this month. Um, we will we will celebrate or mourn, depending on your point of view, the 1700th anniversary of uh, the Milvian Bridge of Constantine's victory uh-huh. um, with Licinius. Yes, and what people are reacting to is they're post-Constantinian or post-Christendom, whatever. Um, the Christendom, the Christianity of Christendom. Um, it's ready. It's time to go. <laughs> uh, okay. it, it should go. Uh, and the shattering of evangelicalism. And, and there's some wonderful studies on what's ex- happening. American Grace by Putnam is a real doorstopper of a book. Uh, but it certainly will give you the facts and figures about evangelicalism um, and, and where it's gone over the last 30 or 40 years in this country and probably in this continent, if you're going to get right down to it. It certainly began to um, fall apart and shatter uh, in the European continent uh, and in the UK many, many years ago. But what we're seeing is um, we have to remember that Protestants came out of Roman Catholics. There was nothing else to make Protestants out of except Roman Catholics. And the Roman Catholics who became Protestant were those who were disaffected with Roman Catholicism in the same way that emergence Christians are those who are disaffected either with Roman Catholicism or with Protestantism, especially in this country where you don't have a strong Orthodox uh, presence. Um, So part of the 500-year thing is to realize that the thing you've built uh, became more religious than Christian. Um, Mm. When people say they're not Christian but they love Jesus, I I just want to laugh and say, so exactly (laughs) – can we define our terms here? Uh, if you love Jesus, then you're a Jesusite, um, and maybe that's a better term. Maybe Christian right now has developed such a, a twang of more religion and more, more Constantinian power, more desire to manipulate the state and the culture, uh, and we should call ourselves Jesusites. Um, I don't know. But however, whatever the rhetoric you choose, there is no question that Constantinian Christianity, especially in the 500 years since the Reformation, and especially in the 200 and so since the Enlightenment, has more and more wished to control the state, um, wished to control society, and that's not the that's not the purpose of religion. Purpose of religion, sociologically, secularly speaking, if you want to put it that way, the purpose of religion, speaking of it that way, uh, is to give meaning. Uh, it is to show value. Uh, it is to establish the authority by which moral uh, and, and wisdom life will be lived. And the farther you get from that and the nearer, farther you get into politics and into economic control uh, and into military power, uh, the more you have defeated and defiled uh, the purpose from a secular point of view of religion. And that's what's happened. So uh, is the number of Christians falling? No, absolutely not. I think there's some fairly good figures, as a matter of fact, especially in Europe, where they're way ahead of us, uh, where Christianity is enjoying a a real vibrancy. Uh, I think it's probably enjoying a real vibrancy in this country. We're not at those figures yet, so I can't prove it. But what's happening is a contextual church, if you want to call it that, or fresh expressions of church, or the neo-monastic movement, or emergence, all of them uh, evidence of emergence Christianity, um, where uh, people are in pubs. I 
God only, literally, God only knows how many <laughs> pubs there are in this country alone or on this continent that have regular weekly gatherings of people who come together to study the Bible and who come to talk Jesus and, and a Christianity that is credible as opposed to uh, entrenched and Constantinian or Christendom's Christianity. So I think there's every reason to be highly optimistic from the point of view of, uh, of Jesusites, if you will. Well, one of the questions you uh, raise is is authority, and you've mentioned that a couple of times. We think about authority as kind of uh, power, controlling people. And, <laughs> That's and, exactly Christendom. That's exactly Yeah, right. but now uh, what happens when that changes? Who decides? Is there something essential about Christianity, and, and who gets to choose what's authoritative and what's not, and how, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, when the Great Schism happened a thousand years ago, um, obviously— what happened was everybody who didn't want to go Greek uh, centered around Rome and the Pope, um, and uh, he became the absolute authority, surrounded by the Curia and the Magisterium, certainly, but became the arbiter because those were people who were um, used to a kingdom uh, and who were just beginning to, um, to understand hierarchical in a really good way, and they just wanted to do it. And so Rome became the authority. And if one wanted to be king, he, he had to be blessed by Rome, right? Mm -hmm. The flip side is if one wanted to be pope, he had to be blessed by the, by the, the kings uh, or a sufficient number of them. So there was an army defending his right to Peter's chair. When the Reformation came along, uh, in order to get all of that, and because capitalism was happening concomitantly in the birth of capitalism in an economic way, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the nation state was happening in the same way in capitalism, um, we've got uh, a, pres uh, a, a Protestant uh, situation that looks very much like the society that is birthing it. Uh, and so you've got this huge hierarchical thing. You've got bishops and supervisors and uh, all of this. Uh, you've got ordained clergy that have to be trained in seminaries. Um, all of that comes with the emphasis on, on enlightenment, on intellectuality, um, and all of that. And uh, so the, the rules, the moral consciousness, whether one is a churchgoer or not, or, or even a Christian or not, uh, the, the moral rules and the moral values are established almost by default, and in establishing those, they're almost established by the society, if you will, uh, with religion uh, counseling it, or those in society who are religious, forming and counseling it. Um, and so you end up, after about a hundred years from the great tsunami or the rummage sale or whatever, you end up with a, a redefinition, a new sense of, of what now is the authority. When Luther did it, as we all know, uh, our Lutheran company. It certainly wasn't Luther alone. But when Luther faced that silence on, on the morning of November 1st of 1517, when the silence said, so now where is our authority? And there was no answer. Uh, he began to answer with a bunch of solas. And we know, you know, sola fide, sola, sola gracia, whatever. But the one that stuck was sola scriptura. The scripture only and only the scripture. And more than one wag has observed that what he really did was disestablish a physical pope and put a paper pope in his place. And mm -hmm. that's a it, it works as a joke or a crack because it's fairly true. It's fairly accurate. Um, but he shouldn't, uh, nor should the reformers really, be blamed for 
what the Enlightenment did with Sola Scriptura, which was they turned it into Protestant inerrancy or, or biblical inerrancy, whichever term you want to use, and, and made of the Bible, uh, bibliolatry is what it's called, made of the Bible um, something it was never intended to be, made it... Um, made it the, the cutting edge for, for, for everything. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, the great determinant, uh, and failing to acknowledge the fact that there are paradoxes uh, in Scripture, uh, there are incongruities and inconsistencies uh, in Scripture, and they're just there. And Protestant inerrancy couldn't allow for that, or because if they did, they would cease to be the authority sociologically and culturally. So what emergence has come along and done, and, and I love it. Uh, there's much of emergence. I, I'm, a, I'm an observer of it, a student of it, rather than necessarily being an emergence Christian, but much of it um, fascinates me and I find attractive. And nowhere are they more attractive than when they talk about the difference between actual and factual in addressing the scriptures that Protestant inerrancy <laughs> addresses it factually, and that just won't play in Poughkeepsie. It, it, it can't be done. There's no way to do it. Uh -huh. Whereas emergence Christians urge us all to, uh, to face it actually, to believe every single word in it is actually true, which is more interestingly enough than most biblical inerrances uh, actually will, will believe um, or will stick by. Uh, and that is to say, emergence will say, there is an enormous human arrogance in thinking that we can reduce God Almighty, who is outside of time and the source of time and around time and through time. and All of that we can reduce into temporal space, into our space, into time-bound space, and reduce it to human logic and in such a way that there will not be incongruities that come out of our need to be time-bound. I think it's a compelling argument. Um, and so I find in emergence, by and large, if you can speak with a broad brush, and I suppose I am, uh, in emergence, by and large, anyway, I find a passionate dedication to the scripture, saying it's actually true. When he says, um, if you have faith enough, you can say to this tree, get up and go into the ocean, and it will, he means it. It's our ignorance that we don't understand that. It actually is true. Um, but it actually all, – all the things there are actually true. We just can't make them all make sense. Um, we don't know what six days is. So creationism is a silly argument, they say, um, and, and they're absolutely right. Evolution is clearly there. It's an idiot that doesn't think so. Um, uh, it's just that we aren't bright enough to understand how it all meshes. Uh, so they, they are passionate about the authority of the scripture, and that's going to be part of the answer, um, I think. I, I'm very fond of a story, John. 20 years ago when the virgin birth, the historicity of the virgin birth was a big deal. Remember that one? Uh, sure. The uh, Jesus and, Seminar were, were part of that, oh, weren't they? Oh, it was it was a huge issue. And I was talking at the cathedral in, Saint, uh, in Atlanta, as a matter of fact, St. Philip's about the historicity of the virgin birth, and the kids, the young people, had done the supper, uh, and as I began to talk, they were clearing dishes, and there's a kid in the back, a boy, 16, maybe 17, but I doubt it, who was scraping the dishes, and he just scraped slower and slower, and finally he just gave up on the dishes and went and sat down in the back row in the audience, and when it was all over and all the adults had gone away, this kid's still sitting there. Uh, and I go back and say, how are you? And he said, I'm fine. And I said, may I help you? And he said, I, 
I have a question. And I thought, oh, dear Lord, you know, what have I done? Uh, and I said, what's your question? And he said, it's about them. And he waved his finger over the empty rows where the adults had been. He said, it's about them. I don't understand. And I said, what don't you understand? Direct quote. He said, it, meaning the virgin birth. It is so absolutely beautiful. It has to be true whether it happened or not. And that's a quintessential example of actuality over factuality. That's what it's a, you'll never get a better definition of emergence position. It's ab so absolutely beautiful. It has to be true whether it happened or not. Um, so anyway, uh, authority uh, is going to be partly in the scripture. Uh, authority also, interestingly enough, and it will be curious. I'd like to come back in 100 years to see. It will be curious to see uh, how this one plays out on secular society. I think I have some ideas. But there's this little thing that happened in uh, 1906 called Azusa Street mm. <laughs> and the birth of Pentecostalism, right? Uh -huh. uh, going right up to the 50s when we get uh, charismatic Christianity coming out of it. Uh, and Harvey Cox, uh, maybe two years ago, was the first really uh, heavily credential religionist to begin to say what we all knew, which was that uh, the, we're going to complete the Trinity in a way that has not been true in Christian history before, uh, that the spirit, direct discernment from the spirit, uh, Pentecostal experience, charismatic experience, um, uh, is going to also come into play and be a huge part uh, of what we do with authority. And, and in many ways, that it has given rise to um, a received prayer that I love very much, uh, which goes like this. Um, Father, teach us, Christus lead us, Spiritus now receive us. Um, and I think that's sort of an overview, as it, well, it's a prayer, obviously, an overview of how emergence is moving and, and where it's going. Um, and when that happens, subtly, what ha and you can already see it, is a repositioning locally. Uh, locally or geographically or locality or whatever, a repositioning of the conceptualization of God where God used to be um, up there uh, and we built towers and steeples and spires and all of that. God was up there and then God was with us uh, and walked the streets with us and uh, we experienced both the God up there and the God walking with us and that was the that was the full life of the Christian. Um, and now God is somewhere um, somewhere in the center of creation, somewhere in uh, the center of subjective space, somewhere um, that is interior but not, uh, not downward or not burrowing, but that's absolutely there. Uh, and so now we recognize the spirit – it's things like, um, and again, you will find scholar after scholar noting the growth in yoga, for instance, uh, the coming of centering prayer, the, uh, the reestablishment of the ancient disciplines. All of those things speak to the fact that now we're moving almost as if uh, there were a circle of trees that had a glorious center. Uh, and having come through uh, the forest to get to the circle and having walked in the circle, we're now moving toward the center of the circle, uh, remembering and functioning out of everything we learned while we were walking toward the circle and walking through the circle and now are walking within the circle. It's, um, it, it to me, is a very uh, moving and hopeful 
um, worldview, and it's definitely where emergence is going to go. There's no question about that. My guest on Religion for Life, Phyllis Tickle. Uh, you can find her website, phyllistickle.com. She's the author of Emergence Christianity, What It Is, Where It Is Going, and Why It Matters. I just One, one personal question, if you don't mind. You live now in Lucy, Tennessee, which is in West Tennessee near Memphis, but uh, you grew up in Johnson City, Tennessee, of course, where this broadcast is coming from, uh, the opposite end of the state. Uh, what, what was your uh, religious experience like here? I think it's the buckle of the Bible belt, and, and how, how is that? how is that? shaped uh, you and in your own emergence well the uh one of the reasons i was so delighted to come on board today is of course johnson city i still have um one daughter and a son-in-law and two grandchildren living in gray and uh, only you and i and our listeners know where gray is Uh, (laughs) but uh now my i was in alexander i was born alexander and my father was academic dean of the university for forever in fact, there's a building on campus, Alexander Hall, named for him. Okay. Uh, so I grew up in an academic home, but I grew up uh, in a home where he had been what I would call a rural Methodist in the best of late 18th century, early 19th century way, and my mother a passionate Baptist. And when they fell in love and decided to marry, neither could tolerate the other's branch of Christianism, so they became Presbyterian, uh, <laughs> which was a great compromise. Uh, and... Uh, he became, as adult converts very often are, a passionate Presbyterian, a passionate Calvinist. We had tulips everywhere. Um, uh. but uh, And so I grew up with that interesting uh, combination of um, Calvinism and passionate loved Calvinism. Uh, and my mother was uh, was a Rogers, as in Adrian Rogers, who uh, was, led much of the reform of the 70s and 80s in Southern Baptist, uh, moved toward deeply conservative. So I grew up in an academic home that insisted that you know what you were talking about if you were going to talk religion. And that, in large part, not because you're Presbyterian, because I'll always be grateful for those 17 years of of being reared Presbyterian, Uh, in large part that's a Presbyterian characteristic. I'm Episcopalian now, and we're not as good at at teaching the Bible. Uh, when I was a youngster coming up, you had to know your stuff. Uh, you had to know the Bible. You had to know the stories. It wasn't that they were going to demand that you know all of the Westminster uh, Confession, uh, but you jolly well better know your stories. Um, I remember one day, I, one Sunday in Sunday school, I blew Balaam's ass. I have no <laughs> idea why, but that was the assignment, and I was clueless about who Balaam's ass was, um, and somehow we just missed that at home in, in giving me my proper education, and um, the pastor called my father on Monday, um, distressed that I did not know that, because the Sunday school teacher had reported to the pastor that Dr. Alexander's little girl didn't know something she was supposed to know, um, and so... When you come up uh, in a deeply narrative tradition with a good deal of Calvinist thrown in uh, and some Southern Baptist, and then you go become an Episcopalian, you're in a whole ecumenical movement all by yourself, um, right. which does indeed qualify me for, for appreciating emergence, if nothing else. Phyllis Long answer to a simple question. <laughs> Phyllis Tickle, my guest, uh, author of Emergence Christianity, What It Is, Where It's Going, and Why It Matters. One, one file. We're just about out of time, Professor Tickle, but from, from this book, from your work in general, uh, what's the takeaway? What, what are you showing us? What would you like us to see? 
What I'd like us to see more than anything else is that, uh, and this is hardly a new idea either. None of my ideas is, is very new. Belonged originally, the, or the explication of it, to a man named Ray Anderson, professor emer was emeritus at Fuller, died about three years ago, and we lost a great scholar. Um, and it was Ray's uh, theme song, more or less, that in the beginning there was Jerusalem, and then there was Antioch. Uh, where we were first called Christians, and that the burden on all of us, whether we're Jerusalem or whether we're Antioch, um, is to understand that there must be intercourse between the two. Traditional church, inherited church, Jerusalem, isn't going to go away. Uh, it's it's going to have to reconfigure. There's no question. But it has the obligation, the absolute obligation, to do as Jerusalem did and to send Paul and Barnabas, metaphorically or really, into Antioch in order to keep the lines of the tradition open uh, to this new thing that's happening. And in the same way, uh, it's imperative that Antioch or emergence in all of its forms, and there are about eight or ten now clearly definable segments to emergence Christianity, uh, that Antioch be grace-filled enough to receive Paul and Barnabas uh, and to cohabit with them, and then in time to send them back to Jerusalem to ask for the imprimatur and the wisdom of James and Peter, which, of course, as we know, Paul did. Um, and as Ray used to say, Jerusalem never got anything out of it, uh, of any fiscal or uh, economic value, uh, but the kingdom of God was served. And so what do I hope we get out of this, out of, out of the study of emergence, out of reading books like uh, Emergence Christianity? is an awareness that whether we're Jerusalem or Antioch, we're not there to save Jerusalem, and we're not here to promote Antioch. Uh, we're here to serve the kingdom of God. And as the Archbishop of Canterbury is fond of saying, behold, God is doing a new thing among us. Um, and we cannot be Christian without both recognizing that and opening the channels between those two divisions. Phyllis Tickle, thank you so much for being with me on Religion for Life. You can find more information about her work at her website, phyllistickle.com. Again, Professor Tickle, thank you for uh, being with me via Skype today for, for your work and for your conversation. Well, thank you for having me, and good luck to East Tennessee. All right. <laughs> Hope to see you soon. And we are off to a good start on the Future of Faith series on Religion for Life. Coming up, my guests will include uh, Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, Carol Howard Merritt, Marcus Borg, Robin Myers, and clergy from the Clergy Project who have given up faith. All right here on Religion for Life. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find more information about my congregation on its website, www.fpcelizabethton.org. You can also find out more information about this program, links to podcasts, articles, sermons, all kinds of wonderful things at the new website, religionforlife.com. That's religion for life, all one word, religion, F-O-R-L-I-F-E.com. Also, find Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well. <laughs>